Shalom, shalom, beautiful friends, a song for peace, a song for peace. We could all use more peace in the world right now and always. Um, always in our prayers for not just a peace being an absence of violence, but a, a, a peace that's much deeper, um, that is pervasive in our inner lives, and ubiquitous in all human experience. So friends, um, we are here today at class number 25 of Nietzsche. Nietzsche is one of the most misunderstood and complicated modern philosophers <laughs> Um, and, um, there's really a lot to, to say here as always, but now we're entering a new territory of abstract thought. Um, a lot of earlier philosophers, they're very clear. They're putting together, they're, they're actually trying to be clear. <laughs> they're trying to be understood so that their systems are adopted. We're now entering an era where some philosophers don't always want to be clear. Um, I mean, Derrida is going to be the worst of that. We'll get to Derrida later, where he's he's commonly accused of 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 trying specifically to not be understood, um, which is just strange. Like, why would you spend your life doing that? But um, but some of them actually do want to be understood. It's just by those who are kind of you know more elitist in their in their in their camp and have spent years studying their ideas. In any case, let's start with a poll question before we dive into some of his ideas here. Are our claims to truth usually about earnest striving for truth or a search for power? Right. When we make um, claims about what we think is true, is that primarily because most of us are just seeking truth or is that because our truth claims are really just power games? What do you think? Of course, there's lots of people, lots of different approaches. But in general, when you when you hear someone believes this religion or believes this moral truth, is that just a power game or is that? Sort of an, an authentic search for truth. Okay, very interesting. Um, 33% think it's a real striving for truth. Others think, 67% think that our, our truth claims are oftentimes just really about power. Very interesting. Okay, friends, is God dead? Whoa, what did we just say? I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a Nietzsche idea. Is God dead? What does such a phrase even mean? Should we live according to the values of our parents? Or is it up to us to figure out the best way of life on our own? Frederick Wilhelm Nietzsche was one of the most significant philosophers of the late 19th century. At the age of only 24, he became the chair of philology at the University of Basel, Basel um, though he had, he had to resign later due to poor health. Through his rejection of the prevailing Platonism, Christianity, and egalitarianism, Nietzsche would deeply influence the postmodernist movement to come. Late in his life, his health severely declined from dysentery, syphilis, diphtheria, I don't even know how to pronounce these, excuse me, um, but, but you all know the ones I'm talking about. In January 3rd, 1889, 
He suffered a nervous breakdown and he never regained his sanity, spending the last 11 years of his life in a vegetative state until his death on August 25th, 1900. What happened at the moment of nervous breakdown for Nietzsche? He saw a man whipping a horse on the street. Nietzsche, Nietzsche ran in between the whip and the horse, yelling for the beating to stop, hugging the horse. He then collapsed, crying, never again to recover. So that encounter gives you a little bit of a sense of his own sensitivities um, as it emerges in that moment. And how, um, even though we'll see some of his ideas feel a little harsh, um, that there is this kind of um, sensitivity towards pain. Consequently, Nietzsche's mother and his sister needed to take care of him for the rest of his life. A perverted version of Nietzsche's philosophy would come to influence Nazism. This is commonly blamed on Nietzsche's sister, who represented him when he was incapacitated and had a deep appreciation for Hitler and fascism. So just to be clear, um, I, I follow the approach of scholars who believe that um, the form of Nietzsche's ideas that the Nazis embraced most robustly were the perversions of his sister, not just him. But of course, there's a lot more to explore there. While some would say Nietzsche sought to destroy the commonly held morality, Nietzsche in reality mainly wanted to reevaluate the Judeo-Christian values that were taken for granted in Germany in his time. He thought Jews took for granted that Judaism was good. Christians took for granted that Christianity was good. And he wants to shake that up. He says, morality is not just what you've inherited from your religion. For Nietzsche, Christianity and Judaism promoted, promoted a slave morality. This is an idea some of us might find distasteful, but we'll, let's unpack it so we at least understand it. Rather than see human beings as free to courageously pursue truth, and the strivings of their will, Judaism and Christianity preached a form of submission to a universal moral law that bound all according to the same standard. He believed Christianity and Judaism emerged out of the weakness of being dominated by Rome. Because they could not defeat the Roman armies on the battlefield, they constructed a notion of the good to which all must submit. And so Nietzsche wanted the, the, the people not simply to defer to their belief systems, but to overturn them in pursuit of the highest truths that they set for themselves. Nietzsche saw the slave morality as an illness in Europe that made the people full of resentment against those who had achieved some measure of power and encouraged them to be condemned as evil. Now, of course, Judaism really held very deeply an ethic of powerlessness until 1948. As soon as the Jews have an army of their own, a state of their own, and embrace power um, to, as a form of defense, um, things change. But prior to that, um, Judaism largely embraces um, ethics based upon being weak. Um, one great example of that is just Pirkei Avot's famous teaching that, that, that the mighty person is not externally mighty. The courageous mighty person is a person with inner restraint. It is one's inner restraint that makes one a warrior, not, not one being a warrior on the battlefield. Now, Christianity is more complicated because once Christianity and, and the Roman Empire merge, um, all of a sudden you've got militant Christianity.
But early Christianity, and certainly later versions as well, embrace a kind of also ethic of, of weakness, um, an ethic of powerlessness, a non-militant religious outlook, um, which later gets distorted, most certainly gets distorted in America as kind of American Christianity merges with American militant, uh, uh, with American militarism. Um, and, and as we see in Israel today, kind of a Judaism that, that merges also with a, a type of uh, militarism that would have been un, unknown, you know, prior to the mid 20th century. Now, that's not me critiquing that. I'm not saying that religion and power is a, is a bad combo. Religion and power might be a good combo and, at, at times if it's used responsibly and might be a bad combo when it's used irresponsibly. Um, nonetheless, Nietzsche thinks that um, that Christianity and Judaism emerge out of the weakness of, of its relationship to, to Rome, and thus it embraces um, a slave morality that where we're not empowered. He wants us to be empowered, and um, and here we're going to see the influence of Darwin as well. That that you want to be you you want uh, the powerful should survive. Okay, but it's okay, but it's complicated. So, so here we go. In his view, the Christian leadership of the time was full of hypocrites, who preached love, but were quick to quick to condemn one another, who put up a facade of weakness, but only in order to take power for themselves. Oh, sound a lot like today? Groups that claim they're totally powerless and disempowered, but make those claims in order to gain more power. This is this is just pervasive in political discourse today. Um, consequently, he called for those who were strong enough to break the chains of their religion and exercise their own power as an individual. You want to be authentic. You don't want to submit to a system. You want to claim your, your deepest authenticity. The clerical class was something Nietzsche had personal experience with. His father, uncle, and grandfathers were all Lutheran ministers. Um, somebody who's more knowledgeable than me, please put in the chat. What makes Lutheran Christianity unique among other Christian denominations? So you can educate us on that. I, knowing that there's dozens of Christian denominations, it's easy to forget the differences. So anyone who is either um, knows it off the tip of their tongue or wants to quickly Google something and copy and paste it would be great to be reminded what's unique about Lutheranism. Um, okay. Anyways, though his father died when Nietzsche was a young child and he was later raised all by women. Some people point to that fact later we'll see his influence of having no male figures in his life being raised only by women which is not rare um, um to have be raised by a single mother or a mother and a grandmother in the world that's not a rare thing certainly rare to be raised only by men would be incredibly rare in any case nietzsche called this the politics of truth he saw that by claiming to hold certain truths people could grab onto power without necessarily meriting it it is only then by taking back the claim to truth that the people are able to take back power as well. This was crucial because to Nietzsche, the fundamental human drive is what he called the will to power. It's a manifestation of the human desire to express one's will upon oneself and one's surroundings and explains why people are willing to risk their lives in order to acquire and exercise power. Nietzsche writes in his work, The Will to Power, there are no facts, only interpretation, and values and their changes are related to increases in the power of those positing the values. That's to say, we choose values that we cherish, not because 
I pause this program for a moment for Aglaia's uh, comment here. Martin Luther promoted the idea of salvation by faith alone. This was subversive because Catholic Church of the era promoted the idea that good deeds were necessary for salvation. Part of it was Luther's neurotic obsession with his own sinfulness and his outrage about the sale of indulgences. Okay, so that <laughs> so that is one um, uh, that is one um, uh, you know nugget um, of perspective on Lutheranism. So thank you for that that um, that early roots around Martin Luther. Martin Luther, I mean, was no friend of the Jews. Anyways, I don't wanna, I don't want to get too too far off off base here, but <clears throat> thank you for that, Aglaia. <clears throat> um, if anyone else wants to add to that, that's also great. In any case, what Nietzsche is saying here about values is that most people who who uphold certain um, values have not evaluated and intellectually critiqued various different values and chosen these over those offer after a deep approach. Really, it is um, it's it's a power discourse. It, it, it's a political game. When when someone says, "Oh, we just need more love. Love is the most important value," what do they really say? You know, it might be that they're deeply, deeply altruistic and charitable people and like live their lives based upon love in all facets. Or it may be that they're playing some some game that um, that they get ahead by by saying they're on the side of love. Right. It may be also um, that one promotes, you know, um, an ethic of um, of egalitarianism. And that sounds really great, too. Right. I stand for the equality of all people. Right. And it might be that they've weighed that up against other values and, and really gone through a critical process and think equality and egalitarianism, you know, is the highest value. Or it may once again be that there's a political motive as to why they're um, self-interested in the, the value of egalitarianism. And so Nietzsche wants us to be very critical and skeptical of why people are promoting the values they're promoting and why they're doing that. And so the only defense against power hungry people, Nietzsche believed, was a radical insistence on truth. Now, we might people think Nietzsche is abandoning truth, which may be true, but other people think he's actually raising the bar for truth. He thinks we've we've dumbed down truth, just like God is dead, right? We've dumbed down God. Yet like the stupid God is dead. The stupid God is dead that we just like our our childhood God. But if we raise the bar of what God actually means, right? It's not clear Nietzsche is promoting atheism, right? He's actually saying, like, actually. Like we need to destroy this infant God that we've just kind of inherited, right? We need to destroy this truth that we haven't adjusted since we were seven years old. And so Nietzsche believed was a radical insistence on truth. He, here's what he, he writes in The Gay Science. The question whether truth is needed must not only have been affirmed in advance, but affirmed to such a degree that the principle, the faith, the relation to it, everything else has only second rate value. Truth is the highest. If Marx thought there was a war of classes and Hegel thought there was a war within the dialectical tensions of history, Nietzsche believed the battle to be won between wills, the will to power, and the slave morality of submission. In the gay science, Nietzsche famously uses and reuses the phrase, God is dead. While this is commonly misunderstood as a call for atheism, what he meant to emphasize with it was that the old systems of religion no longer work or fully make any sense, really. Yet people refused to recognize it and remain committed to these old broken religions. It wasn't anti-religion, but he consistently pushed for what he called the reevaluation of all values. This was because so many of the things we understand to be good can, if we're not careful, 
actually limit our affirmation of life and turn us away from it. Or as the Jewish mystic Rav Cook might have put it, let the old be made new and let the new be made holy. Nietzsche had a notion of philosophizing with a hammer. <laughs> he wanted to smash the accepted, accepted dogmatic truisms of Western philosophy, almost like Abraham in the Midrash of his father's idol shop, where he's smashing his father's idols. Or even like Maimonides with his negative theology. We cannot say what God is, only what God is not. He even saw himself as a quasi-prophetic figure, passionate with what he perceived to be righteous anger. His famous work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, was even from the perspective of a prophet, Zoroaster, the founder of the once prominent Persian religion of Zoroastrianism. By the way, Zoroastrianism, interesting enough, the Babylonian Talmud is immersed in a Zoroastrian culture. And Zoroastrian um, theology influences the rabbis of the Talmud. Let me give one example. Some of the rabbis don't like the idea of having sex in, in, in the light. You should only have sex in the dark. And that was a, that was that that there's no earlier influence Jewishly from that idea. That's a Zoroastrian commitment. Zoroastrianism was very inf in, into dark and light, and thought sexual activity with that's not in the dark was problematic. And that's one of the of 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 some other, of some commonly pointed to approaches of Zoroastrian influence on the Babylonian Talmud. In any case, in thus spoke Zarathustra, Nietzsche popularized his idea of the Ubermensch. The Superman. <laughs> According to Britannica, Britannica, if you're not familiar with the Ubermensch, Ubermensch in philosophy is the now 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 think Hitler. I mean, again, this is this is very much pre-Hitler, but Ubermensch in philosophy is the superior man who justifies the existence of the human race. The superior man would not be a product of long evolution; rather, he would emerge when any man with superior potential completely masters himself and strikes off conventional Christian herd morality to create his own values, which are completely rooted in life on this earth. Nietzsche was not forecasting the brutal Superman of the, of the German Nazis, for his goal was a Caesar with Christ's soul. Okay, so, um, yes, the Nazis become influenced by this idea of Ubermensch. We want the superior race. We want, we want this Darwinian evolution we want, we want humanity to progress. We want progress. And progress is going to happen by wiping, wiping out the weakness of humans, the Jews being the worst of it, the gays being the worst of it. The, uh, who else did Hitler hate? He hated, um, I mean, lots, lots of people. But who else did he, uh, someone remind me, besides gays and Jews? Catholics, right? What is it? Roma people also. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, black people? I mean, I mean, he wasn't wiping out black people, was he? Were the Nazis? I, I I can't think of a case of uh, gypsy black, black culture. Yes, yeah. so it's a it's a long story. But, yeah. long, but but there's I mean there weren't masses of black people killed no. by Nazis, right? No. no. So and um, but I'm gypsy. sure he viewed black as inferior. But he wasn't going to Africa to try to wipe out black people. But yeah. But anyways, gay people obviously. And then who was the one? You, who was the other one you said, Aglaia? Well, gypsies. Yeah, oh, yeah Roma, gypsies. they prefer Roma though. The, term is actually supposed to be Roma now. Oh, okay. Instead of gypsies. Okay. Thank you for that. Eileen, Eileen, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah. Disabled. Anybody who was disfigured 
or disabled was discriminated against and killed because they could not be the concept of Superman. Exactly. Thank you. So, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you have um, mental delays, I mean, for, uh, we're not just talking about people in wheelchairs, of course. Anyone who's got um, learning disabilities or mental delays or um, other forms of um, special needs, you know, we do not want these people alive or to procreate. Um, and now, now uh, again, so um, Nietzsche is not making a violent claim here. Um, I mean, some some might some might suggest that, but. Um, but he, but he does think that weak, weak, me weak mentality needs to be wiped out. Um, that humanity won't progress like that, and so um, people need to become people of virtue. And people of virtue means you have to will it. You have to, you have to own your own values. You can't just uh, submit into the values of your day or the values of your religion or the values of your nation or the value. You have to kind of. Uh, uh, invent them. You have to invent them to some degree, and and become an Ubermensch, become this master of authenticity. So as we've seen, the relationship between Nietzsche's thought and Nazism that would later come in Germany is muddled with later interpretations of his work, being ones he almost certainly would have disapproved of. Nietzsche famously broke off his friendship with the composer Richard Wagner over Wagner's anti-Semitism. And in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Nietzsche offers a critique of nationalism, right? That's one of the great debates today. Oh, can I enjoy Wagner's music? And people are passionate on both sides of, no, like we shouldn't enjoy the art or music of, of haters, right? We should take down statues of slave owners. Um, we should you know, not have their names on things and we shouldn't celebrate any of the works or good things that haters also did. And other people say, look, um, works are detached from their creators. And you can enjoy music even if it came from a hater. And art can be beautiful even if an anti-Semite or racist, racist created it. And that's one of the, the a very common debate that continues to happen today. And and we can celebrate the goodness of what a slave owner did in the world, even if they were also a slave owner. And we can celebrate the goodness of what an anti-Semite did, even though if they hated Jews. And so people are complicated. And and the other side. And so that's one of the debates we can open later if, if folks want to weigh in on that. That's died down in recent years, but think a few years ago. I think in the, in the Trump in the Trump presidency, there was a lot of conversation about the statues, and that part of dismantling white supremacy is dismantling, you know, anything that continues to, you know, celebrate um, some of that past. In any case, one of his criticisms of Christianity was that it was not life affirming. He, it relied heavily on claims about the next life. Thus, it turns away from what's truly important here on Earth and undermines our human potential. Nietzsche wants us to affirm this world, affirm this life, affirm my life. And he thinks Christianity throws off a lot of the responsibility of affirming this life because it's so otherworldly. Just as a side note, although I like to say this all the time, Judaism is commonly misperceived as this, wor as this worldly. It, it is very much this worldly, but it's also otherworldly. It, it's really um, a push uh, a pushback on Christianity's um, you know um, focus so much on otherworldliness that 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 in in recent decades Judaism kind of downplayed the otherworldly aspect, but um, but but certainly Judaism is much more in its in its nature thisworldly um, in its theology than 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 Christian Christian theology would be, um, which is not which is certainly not a critique of Christianity. I'm just kind of offering that perspective in light of Nietzsche. This was part of Nietzsche's rejection of Plato. For Plato, even the most noble things in this world, such as truth and beauty, 
are only a shadow of the forms in another higher world, right? There's another world for Plato. He's a mystic. Therefore, to Nietzsche, both Platonism and its influence in Christianity, Christianity is deeply influenced by Plato, as we talked about, you know, a few months ago, uh, do the damaging work of turning people away from this world that we live in and the things that matter most in it. Nietzsche had a concept of the eternal recurrence. Though the idea is rooted in Greek thought, Nietzsche proposed it is more of a thought experiment. If one was condemned to live their life over and over again, forever, would they be able to embrace it in its fullness, the good and the bad? For Nietzsche, it was important that we should make each choice as if it were one that we must eternally affirm. The choices we make here and now, he believed, are forever. So friends, this is kind of an interesting thought experiment, which bridges this worldliness with otherworldliness, which is to say, I should live a life where I affirm the way I'm living so deeply that if I were to eternally relive the life I have lived, I would affirm it as a good life, right? I can't just blame others for why I live how I live or say, you know, um, it's not really me who chose this, right? The life I live should be one that I would eternally choose to relive. So don't we need to be prepared for future challenges, not to mention contemporary ones, towards our cherished ideals? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, wrote in his book, Morality, if I recall, this is his last book before he passed away all too young, just a few years ago. It was Nietzsche who foresaw what was likely to happen. When people give up their faith in religion, it would not be religion alone that would lose. They would lose morality and with it a, cert a certain a certainty for truth, excuse me, a concern for truth. And then even science would lose its authority. The world needs religion. Of course, there's bad religion. So the world needs good religion. But he thinks that once religion is gone, religion is really a force in its good form for an authentic search for truth. And once religion dies and a search for God, a search for truth, People will also give up on truth itself, and even to the realm of science, um, and um, and and for the and for morality. Now, um, okay, there's quite a bit to unpack there, um, and we'll get to that. So, what should Nietzsche's philosophy mean for us in our time? Well, I think first we should recognize why these ideas might be intoxicatingly attractive to teenagers who want to break free from all the rules of their parents, from their school and their religion, right? I assume all of us went through that at some point in our lives. The norms that exist often don't make sense. And it's a natural impulse to think one can righteously reevaluate them all or even be fully liberated from them all. <laughs> More than attractive, these ideas might be helpful, right? Think about that age, maybe you were a teenager, maybe you were in your 20s, where you're like, you know, want to give your finger to all authority. Authority is all corrupt, right? Every Everybody is lying. Everything is corrupt, right? Religions are all just fa fantasies. Everything is just something um, that's a lie around us. The media is only lying, and my teachers are giving me distorted truths, and, you know, everyone. My parents are trying to make me conform to systems of oppression, and, you know, every every everything around me is really... Um, and so really, I should just put on my headset on my head and scream to like, you know, loud music because I'm mad at the world. That's all lying to me. Right. Uh, to different degrees, we might have gone through that. I didn't fully go through that. 
although my brother did and um and i and i've got a lot of friends and colleagues who went through that that stage of kind of like everything is subversive everything is a rebellion um you know and so for that kind of person nietzsche is incredibly attractive because nietzsche is basically like give your finger to the world and reinvent everything on your own terms right the only good is the good that you yourself discover the, the good that you affirm on your own and that's very empowering and so um for someone in that life stage i'd tell them to read nietzsche it's like you know what i'm not telling i'm not going to go tell that teenager uh, you're wrong like the, all these people around you love you and are giving you truth right i'm gonna be like you know what if you're in a stage of life right now where you just want to reject and burn down right check out nietzsche because you can go deep but then do your work do your work of affirming the values you think are true don't just don't just break, be an anarchist and try to destroy everything do the work of trying to build up something you think is true, even if you're going to break everything else down. So, however, as we mature, we can come to understand the importance of relying on the good things we've inherited, right? America's not just a history of slavery and colonialism, although it, it is all that bad side and, you know, and military, you know, conquest, right? America also has beauty, beautiful sides to our side, of our, to our, our truth. Christianity is not just an oppressive tradition of crusades and proselytizing and 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 um and colonialism and 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 you know forcing this in christianity's done a lot of good in the world too right and and so on um and and so too today those who now are against higher academia because they see how deeply anti-semitic so much of of universities are these days that they've embraced a very simplistic notion um that basically sounds like you know sounds like this like the worst thing you can be, be today you know is um, is a white colonialist, and 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 the Jews are most guilty of it. And when you have like dumbed down ide ideologies like that, um, nothing makes sense anymore. And so you will uh, find yourself now justifying acts of terror as, as noble forms of resistance. And so, um, so too, I, I want to give caution to that camp. Like universities are still a great place to educate people, even if there's hateful ideologies and oversimplistic, reductive ideas that get celebrated there. Um, we can't destroy like the, uh, the best forms of education we still have. As we mature, we start to see the good and bad in everything. That's the whole point of this whole philosophy series is not to condemn philosophers or love them, but to see the good and see the bad and learn from it all. So Judaism, Judaism is especially built on a deep respect from the ideas of our ancestors. While our ancestors' beliefs aren't the end of the story, they are the foundation that we choose to build on, Right. Even though there's so many things of his, of his, of the past we would disagree with, like the, some of the basic moral assumptions of people 2,000 years ago are going to be so different from us in 2023 America. And yet we want to build on that past. And so while there's a reverence for the inherited tradition, we also know how important it is to question whether everything we've been taught is actually the highest good. There's a balance to be struck between using the wisdom of those who came before us and affirming our own lives in our own time with our own ways of making meaning. We know that it's not good to have either side without the other. We should be authentic and questioning and reevaluating and, and, um, and ask ourselves what the good life is. And we should embrace the most noble truths of our past. So moving towards a conclusion here, while for Nietzsche, the vulnerable among us have a drive and a duty to take back their power, in Judaism, we understand that supporting those who need it to be an eternal value also, right? 
it's not just that the that the vulnerable should rise up. It's that we should support the vulnerable, right? They're not the weak. Um, the, the, they're not the weak and to be looked down upon, but also to be people to be cared for. The job of tradition, rather than keeping people in submission, as Nietzsche might have it, is to instill us with a morality that is sturdier and goes back further than a mere play for power. By submitting to the will of God, one might say, we in fact prevent ourselves from submitting to the will of unjust authorities. Right? Who do we submit to ultimately? Is it just a power game of this world or is it noble good be, you know, to some degree beyond this world that affirms this world, paradoxically? So to conclude, in Judaism, we know that there's a time to say that the misused conceptions of God and the good are dead. But we also know that we can have a responsibility to take the broken pieces of what didn't work and create something newer and truer together. Okay, friends, that was a lot. That's Nietzsche on one foot. <laughs> um, I would love to hear from you and some things you're thinking about here. Or, and as always, some tangents are great too. Hi, Cheryl. Good morning. Um, one thing you said that struck me because we've heard a lot about, and it was, it was from the very beginning, um, we all we always hear that expression or have in recent years, truth to power. And, you know, I, I was wondering if that, I mean, I, I looked it up and I found that it was initially a Quaker expression that um, was used for those, you know, for nonviolent. You can you can you can get the truth through nonviolent reaction to everything through nonviolence. But I was wondering if that was kind of, and then I actually a little further, it said something about sometimes it's used, um, it's co-opted to and used by people with the groups with irrational fears. So I, I was wondering if, you know, any of that came from or came out of what Nietzsche had to say. Okay. So I, so I love that. I'm, I'm not sure I understood your second point though. What was the point about irrational fears? Oh, okay. I, I, just a little further, when I was reading about it, it said that the original phrase was to be, you know, nonviolent, but sometimes it was misappropriated by groups that had irrational fears about things. And that was their way of getting to them, you know, well, speak truth to power, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I didn't exactly understand how that would fit in, but I, I was... Um, you know, interested in how that came out of this initial not this initial nonviolent expression of seeking truth. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, so th so this is a this I love that you went to Struction, Cheryl, because this is a great opportunity for us to just question some basic assumptions that some of us may hold. So, by and large, I, I suspect most of us would celebrate the notion of speak truth to power, which means um, there is a person who holds a noble truth for some moral good, and they are courageously willing to speak it up to someone who has more power than them, putting themselves at risk to stand up for that. The most classic case would be um, a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is going to go and get arrested in front of power, and he's going to speak the truth of the equality of all human beings, right? Great. Well, let's let's look at some of the assumptions in there. Um, what part of that implies is that the weak are the ones that hold truth and the powerful are the subverters of truth. There's a binary and the powerful are the oppressors and the weak are the truth holders. And um, the one who speaks truth is the one who doesn't have power. 
And um, I think Nietzsche would reject that. Nietzsche wants to see that the powerful, uh, that, uh, sorry, that those who, who love truth um, are, are ultimately powerful, that they don't allow themselves to be weak. And so it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I mean, going back to Marx, um, I mean, yeah, Marx sees the deepest truth is, is found in the worker class, right? The, the, the oppressors don't know anything about the moral good. Um, and so that's the case in our day, too. I think many people will often assume one or the other. Some people are more likely to believe somebody who's rich. Oh, they're rich. They're educated. They're reliable. Right. There's a bias that um, the, the rich, educated person is someone who has got their finger more on the on the pulse of moral truth. Um, they're not as biased by this and that. Then there's other people who think, actually, that those people are the oppressors, um, those with wealth. And the, the, those who are the most poor are the speakers of truth um, and are the ones who have to rise up against power. And that's so influenced exactly by what we're looking at of modern philosophy and, and, and many revolutionary movements that basically want to overthrow monarchs and want to over, you know, you know, overturn some of that. But Nietzsche is actually pushing back on exactly that. Nietzsche is pushing back on the philosophical establishment of uh, in, to some degree, and uh, you know, in addition to to the to, to all those religions. So yeah, so Cheryl, you, you opened up something fascinating there. So thank you. Yeah, hi Aglaia. Okay, so um, just doing this the uh, fast way. Um, the okay, so I mean, his most famous quote was you know the one about beware of fighting monsters, blah 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 blah, and how you are going to become a monster. You know, so the idea of the binaries with Nietzsche is kind of um, it's kind of a sketchy idea anyway though because you are going to become your enemy anyway uh, um, the other thing though is that um i'm kind of looking at that with the context of um looking at judaism though like um for whatever reason what's standing out to me you know like um yaakov you know wrestling with whoever like you know it's never really 100% defined who he's wrestling against if i'm not mistaken so yakov actually like wrestling and getting his hip dislocated and how that basically like becomes yeah this is when you become israel you know because of the struggle and everything though that's what's sticking out to me right now so i don't know if that's like actually doing anything for anyone else but that's oh what... that's totally great um yeah i'm sorry am i cutting you off no, it's okay. Oh, thank you. That's I'm so glad you brought that in because I think that's that's such a great Aglaia, um example in Jewish thought of part of what he's celebrating. That um the notion that one would just sit in a in a sanctuary and embrace God or embrace the moral truth um in kind of a passive, um comfortable way, um it will, will lead to the downfall of all of us it really takes a deep struggle, a deep wrestling with self and what's beyond the self and really kind of getting injured in that, really kind of feeling the, um, the you know, feeling that struggle on such a deep level that one can actually find themselves. Um, now, again, the, the, the getting injured, it, the goal is not to be weak. The goal is to become stronger ultimately. But yeah, so I I love that you brought that in. So thank you. Hi, 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 Eileen. Hi. Um, 
I just want to go back to what you said in terms of power. I kind of think it's a middle ground. Truth is not with just the educated, nor is it just with the unwashed mob. It exists, and some people may have more truth than others, but this is an abstract noun. It cannot be defined similarly to everybody because we come with our own um, bias and our own concept of what truth should be. So I don't think we'll ever have a universal, well, we'll have a few universal truths, but even those can be pushed off. I mean, if so if universal truth is to say, thou shalt not murder, here we are seeing two democratic countries fighting and killing. So do we have a law that says, thou shalt not murder unless you are protecting your country? Question for you, Rabbi, what does Torah say in regard to this? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Eileen. Um, and I'd love to hear others weigh on on this too, on what does it mean to be committed to truth? Um, and is truth universally attainable in some sense? Now, there's so many different degrees of, of truth, of course. There's the heavily personal, subjective, relative truth that nobody can understand but me. It's the truth within my own inner life, of my in, in my consciousness, some, something that I know and it's particular to me. It's the truth of my existence in a sense. Um, it's my own personal integrity. And then there are, you know, in the public discourse, facts versus opinions. I think most of us would embrace facts as valuable truths as it relates to justice in society. Um, that there are facts of what happened and what didn't happen. And we have courts to help determine that so that justice can be done. And then we get beyond just, you know, the realm of facts into the realm of principles. Like you're saying here, do not kill or be compassionate or love your fellow person. But once you take a principle and you try to apply a principle to a situation, all of a sudden our disagreements of those truths change. Okay, do not kill, we say. Now, some people will take that to a, um, to an, to, um, an extreme, an extreme, and would be a radical pacifist that would say, if someone is coming to kill you, you do not defend yourself um, you, in any way because you cannot kill. Um, or they would say, we should abolish all armies, abolish all nation states, abolish all weapons. Um, and others will say, okay, well, do not kill applies to X, Y, and Z case, but it doesn't apply to A, B, and C case. Now people are going to get into abortion. Does do not kill apply? People are going to get into death penalty. How does do not kill apply? Um, you know, and they're going to get into end of life care. How does do not kill apply? And all of a sudden, all truth becomes very complicated 
of, of a principle we're all committed to or do not lie. Oh, do not lie sounds pretty good. We should all be truth tellers. Well, what about those cases where we should lie, right? Because there's a higher truth, right? And and so on. And so this all gets really, um, really difficult. And then we get to wars and narrative narrative wars on what's happening and who's telling the truth and who's not. And um, this is so sad and so complicated. And um, and can we hold multiple truths at once? My gosh, if, if there's anything needed now more than ever, um, you know, can we can we hold multiple truths and um, uh, and can and conflicting truths and how important that that seems to be. And so, yeah, Eileen, I appreciate you sharing that. And um, I think what what we what what I think we what we want to steer away from in, or, or, or excuse me, what I want to steer away from. On the one hand, is an absolutism, an absolutistic notion of truth, that there is an absolute truth, and we should all bring everyone on board to these A, B, and C absolute truths. We've seen what the world looks like when we try to do that, impose our truths on everyone else. And the other form, which is kind of the disengagement and abandonment of truth, to basically say it really is empty. Um, It is really kind of a vain search just for power. Um, there are no truths that have any real value and find this middle ground of, of exploration. Um, it's kind of like how I think of, of, of God, whatever God is, right? We can never know God, but we can get closer. We can get closer to godliness. So too, we never hold the truth, but we can get closer to truth together by being empathetic by listening to other people's truths, by searching within ourselves the more deeply for truth. We never hold it. It's always elusive, but we can get a little closer, perhaps. Okay, thank you for that. Oh, yes, situational truth, Eileen. I really appreciate that. I think situational ethics is a fascinating exploration because what we might, I mean, you know, we have all these moral dilemmas. I mean, one of the greatest things to do with kids or grandkids is give them moral dilemmas. And if you can't, if you can't think of some on your own, you can research and find hundreds of them. What would you do in this moral dilemma? Um, it's a great activity to do with kids and it, it inspires moral imagination. It inspires moral reasoning and inspires side taking and perspective taking and situational truth. I think in situational ethics, what's so amazing is that we normally think of things as, well, in this case, the right thing to do is X. In that case, the right thing to do is Y. But then there, when you get to situational ethics, where are there so many factors involved that um, of who I am and who they are and what's happening in this particular case, um, we get to a complicated moment of, of, you know, we can't decide what we were doing that moment. I think a great case is warfare. For those of us who have never been in uniform and put in moments of war, it's so easy to judge soldiers and what's right and wrong to do. Um, But in times of war and in times of extreme threat to one's life, um, people do very different things. Um, And I think there's a lot of cases like that as well. I think one of the areas, this is going to be an unpopular comment, but so too, I think that the, the last people I want to defend are politicians. It feels like politicians are like the low of the low in our in our world today. But like, 
I think so too. When you're actually responsible to just a lot, a lot of people, you, I think you find yourselves in situations where you have to compromise your values a little bit because you're choosing between the bad and the bad. And those who operate outside of political power feel like that's only evil on a sellout. But when you're put in a situation of being responsible for like so much more than you could possibly be responsible for, like you inevitably have to compromise your values, just like a soldier in warfare who is overwhelmed, right? Um, so um, anyways, to go, um, yeah. So uh, Aglaia, do you want to flesh out your question there? I mean, I think what you're getting at is this notion of like getting closer to the truth and kind yeah, of bending in that direction, but never getting there. So like, like, is there something you're getting at there? No, you actually already answered it. Those like getting closer and closer, but I just oh, think yeah. it's something, yeah, divine basically though, like you're getting, but you are never going to touch it. That's why it's an asymptote. Great. And so I think one of the things I look for in somebody that I want to read is both what they feel they know, but also what they feel they don't know. So someone who's very clear if they're commenting on the Israel-Gaza war or, you know, um, something else that's, you know, really on the tip of our uh, uh, top of our minds these days are, um, well, what is it you're really clear on in terms of some principles and facts? And what are some things that actually you feel really humbled by the complexity of that actually you don't know the answer? And, you know, I mean, one of one of the one of the ones today that I think there's just really little expertise on is what is the most effective way to bring hostages home? Is it through ceasefire? Is it through ground invasion? Is it through um, diplomacy? And there's a whole bunch of ideologues suggesting only one of those, right? But, um, but actually it's really unclear um, right now how you you do you achieve that now there's many other goals in addition to bringing hostages home in a, in a tense time like this but if i'm reading someone i want to know not only that he oh peace and compassion are the ultimate value so ceasefire now or hamas deserves it and we need to break them down so you know military action now right uh, there's good claims on both of those sides right but i want to know like what do you not know right in your search for truth in this complex moment where are you humbled in addition to you know feel moral conviction Okay, Sarah, over to you. I just wanted to ask, what was Nietzsche's relationship before Zoroastrianism? Do we know that he had one? Ah, uh, um, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's a great question. So, um, I mean, the character in this book is is an is an Arab person. Um, it's an Arab person, um, and it, it, it's an interesting work of fiction, um, of, of intellectual fiction, around how he kind of looks at Zarathustra and how that relates to Zoroastrianism. But um, his broader relation to Zoroastrianism, I, I, I don't know, but that's a great question. Sarah, but while you're talking, you want to share something else? Because I see you put something in the chat. You want to? You want to share why you like that quote? It just feels really Jewish. I mean, when you look at the Midrash, we're constantly interpreting all the time. We, we don't know. And that that feels like a very Jewish center to me. 
Great. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, and uh, I love that. And 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 Aglaia touched on that as well. That like we don't know who Yaakov is wrestling with. And so, yes, we can give a drush. We can give a sermon or a speech and say, "Here's the interpretation I like." Right. But basically, the Jewish hermeneutical enterprise is one of constant reinterpretation, and that's and that's amazing um, to engage in that constant reinterpretive process um of reality and and of truth and and what that means to us and that that's not a, again that's not an abandonment of truth it's kind of raising the bar yes ed you want to be our last uh, our last one to jump in and, and oh maybe gary too um yeah i just wanted to have you if you would make a comparison if you would of musar uh because in the time that i took it it was easy to sit, well, it was actually difficult to sit in a classroom and define this from a, you know, higher level. What is humility? Define it. Define the extremes. The hard part was in the next week before the next class, you had to actually practice it. So every situation had to be evaluated as to you know, how, how do I place this? And, and then, of course, as you got more and more traits involved, it became even more complicated. And it seemed like Musar put me through what you were describing. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm now experiencing something and I'm having to look at it from a different perspective. And what's the truth here? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, how, how should I handle this thing? Mm -hmm. And and I think that Nusar was exactly that. Awesome. Awesome. Good. So just before I get to that, Gary, you want to jump in too? Yeah, I, Sarah kind of hit a, a, a note with me uh, because uh, Jewish uh, history is we're always reinterpreting. So if we're always reinterpreting the stories and, you know, the various uh, drashas, uh, does truth ever change? Does the truth change from uh, when the Talmud was written compared to 2023? Because mm. we now have additional knowledge and base uh, in which we judge things. It's a question, not a comment. <laughs> I don't know the answer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, good. So to uh, let's go to both of those points. So, um, I, I mean, beyond the bigger question Gary's asking, I can say what the rabbis are trying to do. That what the rabbis are trying to do is even when they know their understanding of truth is fundamentally different than the era before them, they interpret it as though they're not changing it. There's a continuity where we're talking about the same word, the same concept, the same law. We've totally changed our understanding of it, but there's a continuity that we're a part of the same enterprise. And that's really kind of interesting, um, you know, to, um, you know, you know, even like, even like the word, the, the dozens of words for God that exist, right? People know that they mean something totally different than the previous eras met, meant. And yet they're using similar language. They're not abandoning the language. Um, and so it's a great point, Gary. Now, and then just to close on on Ed's point, uh, first I'm going to share my screen. Oh, no, um, Alex, can you help me share my screen? Um, in terms of Musar, I, I, I'll say two things. One is um, that one of the great traits of Musar is called Hitzlamdut, which means every moment is a learning journey. Every mo moment is a learning experience. Every encounter is a learning opportunity. That truth 
is not this thing of the past that I go discover in some book. I mean, it's partially that maybe, but truth is something at every moment I'm uncovering. At every moment I'm in this, I'm in the search for it. And if you look at some of the classical verses on truth, it says, Midvar Sheker Tirchak, distance yourself from a false word. Speak truth from your heart. Right? Truth is the seal of God. Falseness has no legs. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And one of the Musar traits, oh, and it says in Pirkei Avot, the world exists on three things, justice, truth, and peace. Right? And in Musar, there's this process of moving towards emet, of truth, and away from sheker, falsehood. And that process is not just this objective search of reading books. It's this deep tr- character development process of stripping away the falsehoods within us, stripping away the mask. And we're going into Halloween tonight, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's better said on Purim. I'm not a Halloween guy. But, um, but you know, because a lot of people are wearing masks today, you know, this process of like stripping away these masks, stripping away these internal lies that we live with to constantly reevaluate, to reinterpret them, to see more clearly beyond ourselves. And that's what we're here to do together is to help each other see beyond the way we saw yesterday. Have a beautiful day, everyone. Sorry we went late.